0: night in Revelation chapter 21, the 21st chapter of Revelation. (coughs) And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth are passed away and the sea is no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he shall dwell with them, and they shall be his people, And God himself shall be with them, and be their God. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. The first things are passed away. And he that sitteth on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he saith, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said unto me, They are come to pass. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the Beginning and the End. I will give unto him that is athirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But for the fearful, and unbelieving, and abominable, and murderers, and fornicators, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part shall be in the lake that burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And there came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls who were laden with the seven last plagues. And he spake with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like unto a stone most precious, as it were a jasper stone, clear as crystal, having a wall great and high, having twelve gates, (coughs) and at the gates twelve angels, and the names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east were three great gates, and on the north, Three gates, and on the south, three gates, and on the west three gates, and the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb, and he that spake with me had for a measure a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof, and the city lieth four square, and the length thereof is as great as the breadth, and he measured the city with the reed 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height thereof are equal. 12,000 furlongs is 1,400 miles. And he measured the wall thereof a hundred and forty-four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. And the building of the wall thereof was Jasper, and the city was pure gold like unto pure glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, chalcedony, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, sardonyx, the sixth, sardius, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, Topaz, the tenth, chrysoprase, the eleventh, jacinth, the twelfth, amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the several gates was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein. For the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are the temple thereof. And the city hath no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine upon it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the lamp thereof is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk amidst the light thereof, and the kings of the earth bring their glory into it. And the gates thereof shall in no wise be shut by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything unclean, or he that maketh an abomination and a lie, but only they that are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a river of water of life, bright as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the midst of the street thereof. And on this side of the river and on that was the tree of life, bearing twelve manner of fruits, Yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no curse any more. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be therein. And his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face. And his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall be night no more. And they need no light of lamp neither light of sun, for the Lord God shall give them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Well, now, this evening, we come to the third of these special studies upon the book of Revelation in particular. And you will remember that last week, We spoke a little bit about the first three chapters of Revelation and the last two. Revelation chapter 1, 2 and 3 and Revelation chapters 21 and 22. I'm not going to go over that, although what we have to say tonight will of necessity um, have a lot to do with it. What we do know is this, that this book opens with a vision of the risen triumphant christ in the midst of seven very ordinary churches he is walking in the midst of those seven very ordinary humdrum companies of god's children and indeed we would have no book of revelation if the lord had not sent what these visions, uh, uh, gave these visions, if he had not given these visions to John, and told him to write them down and send them to these seven churches. So, in the first place, it is to these seven churches that the book of Revelation is addressed. Never forget that. It's often forgotten. Uh, it has a lot of bearing upon the whole message of this book of Revelation. And when you come to the last chapter, in Revelation 22 and verse 16, after all these tremendous visions, we hear the Lord saying in verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify of these things for the churches, or concerning the churches, if you like, or over the churches. Uh, There are a number of ways that you can put it. Uh, But the fact is that we come right back in the last chapter to the first three chapters. And the most uh, uh, interesting uh, light, perhaps, of all that can be thrown upon this is that from Revelation chapter 4 right through to Revelation chapter 1, the word churches or church is never used even once. That surely is quite significant in some way. And that's why, of course, some commentators have um, felt, have allowed the whole thing to drop out. For them, quite honestly, Revelation 4, from then on to Revelation 22, verse 5 or 6, is the main uh, topic of this book. And somehow or other this business about the churches got somehow into it. And therefore we often have books written on the seven letters to the churches, as if that has really very little to do with the rest of the book of Revelation. It has a tremendous amount to do with the book of Revelation. A tremendous amount. It wasn't just these seven letters or messages that uh, uh, the Lord said, Uh, to John, he was to write down, but all that he saw. These seven messages became, as it were, the introduction to tremendous visions. And so we find in chapter 1 a reaffirmation of the absolute sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. In uh, chapter 1, and I think it's verse... 17. I am the first and the last and the living one. I became dead and I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and hell. Now we're going to see visions of death and hell. But it begins with a tremendous vision of this risen, glorified Christ in the throne of God a little lamb as it had been slain, taking a book which, of course, as I mentioned to you last week, was uh, uh, quite clear, its significance was quite clear to all those in early church days, New Testament days, because it was a will or a testament made by someone of all their belongings, of all their possessions. It was always a a scroll and it was sealed seven times. And so it was quite clear that this was something to do with the heritage of God, the possessions of God, the belongings of God, if you like. And uh, God said, who is going to the voice cried, Who will take this will, this testament, and realize it? Who will, will open it? Who will uh, secure it? Who will bring, as it were, the purpose of God into being? and the little lamb that had been slain in the midst of the throne. He takes the book. It's a tremendous vision of the one who is the first and the last, beginning and the ending, who is the living one and became dead, and behold, he's alive forevermore. And that's how the book begins. And then you go on. Seven seals in those chapters from... Chapter 6 to chapter 8. And then an interlude between the 6th and 7th seal. And on the 7th seal, out of the 7th seal, 7 trumpets. And an interlude between the 6th and 7th trumpet. These interludes are tremendously important because in them we find the overcomer. We find the great multitude that God uh, ransoms and deems who overcome. And then uh, in chapter 12... Uh, at the end of chapter 11, we have a break. And in chapter 12, we see wonders in heaven. Now, these, many of these things have all to do with death and hell. You've only got to read some of these things. Death on every side. Hell is on every side. The authority of hell, the power of hell, the authority of darkness, if you like, is on every side. But you see, we've had this glorious vision right at the beginning. I have the keys of death and hell. So although the enemy is given scope and rope and is able to do sometimes what he likes, we hear of martyrs, we hear of oppression, we hear of persecution, we hear all kinds of dark and terrible things, yet through it all, finally, we see the Lord triumphant and not the Lord alone, but a great company with him. When we come to chapter 12, we see wonders in heaven. Well, again, we talked about that, that woman, whoever she is. I'm not going to interpret it. Many have different ideas. I just mention it. There was a woman there. She was a, like the sun in glory. S- s- crown of seven stars ahead, head. Moon under her feet. And that great dragon, that great horrifying creature whose tail was so big that as it swished about it swept a third of the stars of heaven out of the sky. Great red monster waiting for the woman was pregnant, just about to give birth, waiting to devour the child the moment it came into the world. But heaven stepped in and seized the man-child and took him up into heaven. And then the devil was furious. And made war with the woman and with her seed now mark that it may be a key when one day we come to the book of revelation properly uh, uh, he made war with the woman and with her seed, and then we see that the, the devil doesn't know what to do he's foiled he's frustrated so he waits as it were if you one alternative reading is he not john but they Satan, that old serpent, the dragon he waits on the seashore and out of the sea comes a great beast, diverse creature, part leopard part bear, part lion and part something else a most horrifying creature we've got death and hell here we've got all the power and authority of hell itself Satan and this antichrist And then, out of the earth comes another beast to help the first. And this one is like a lamb. But it speaks like the dragon. It's the false prophet. Oh, we have vision after vision if we go on. Chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, it looks as if the devil's winning. For it says that everyone who hasn't got this mark of the beast in them can neither buy nor sell. They cannot live. It's like a, a closed shop. No one can buy or sell unless they're in this union, as it were, with a card, a registration number. And furthermore, there most terrible words of all of these. The whole world goes after this first beast. And it says he is given authority to overcome the same. Where's them out. It's a terrible picture. But when we come to chapter 14, what do we find? <laughs> we find the Lamb on Mount Zion with 144,000 singing a new song. Uh, there's triumph in spite of it. The keys of hell are in the hands of the Lamb. When we come to chapter 15 and 16, we come now to the seven bowls with the seven last plagues and we see them, the angels ready to pour them out on the earth. just like the book of Exodus all over again. Plague after plague after plague in which the final great exodus of God's people is going to be accomplished. When you come to Revelation 17, 18, 19 and 20, we're back again with those awful creatures. This time it's the the scarlet woman or the harlot, the prostitute, and she's riding on the beast He's being carried by the beast until the beast turns round and savages her and destroys her. Well, we cannot stop there. What we find there is this: we are told this woman is called Babylon. There are only two cities in God's sight, Babylon and Jerusalem. There are only two women in God's sight, the prostitute or the bride. The mother of the harlots or prostitutes of the earth the abominations of the earth or the wife of the lamb. So we see in these chapters 17 to 20 a ripening. On the one side the ripening of evil and dark hellish designs and purpose. Ripening fully to harvest. The greatest display of satanic power that the world will have ever known with the devil almost incarnate if not incarnate in the person of the Antichrist. But on the other side we have another ripening. We have the ripening of God's good seed. We have the ripening, if you like, of that which is of God. And we find in chapter 19 a great hallelujah chorus. In spite of all the rest, when finally Babylon goes down We find a great hallelujah chorus. Why? Because the bride hath made herself ready and the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. And the great cry goes out, blessed are those that are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then we go on to judgment. We see the Antichrist flung into a bottomless pit. We see the false prophet flung in. Judgment. All the nations go out to war, and the king goes out himself. He's called the Word. A sword goes out of his mouth, and those who are chosen, faithful and true, go out with him. And then we have in chapter 20, the millennium. If you believe in the millennium, there it is, in chapter 20. And then, finally, the last great judgment. When all the books are opened, all the records are exposed, when every man and every woman, except those who've been already saved by the grace of God, stand before the face of God. Heaven and earth, flee away from his face. But every single human being must stand before him. That's the book of Revelation. When you come to Revelation 21 and 22, it's another story. Now there is no more death, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more crying. All that belongs to the first things. They have passed away. There is a new heaven and a new earth. And here it's all to do with the Lamb, the wife of the Lamb. And the Lamb. Well, now there, we've seen all that. And right at the very beginning of it, we have this tremendous vision of a risen, triumphant Christ who proclaims, I am the first and the last and the living one. I became dead and I am alive forevermore. And behold, I had the key death, and hell. This book is not meant to frighten us. If we're believers, it's meant to encourage us. And there is a blessing for every child of God who, in dependence upon the Spirit of God, reads and hears these words. Well, now, what is all this about overcoming? That's the question we asked ourselves last week finally, what is all this about? What is overcome? Now, it seems quite clear that the message of this book has something to do with what is called in this book the testimony of Jesus. Now, this phrase remarkably enough, only occurs, except for one other time, in the book of Revelation. The testimony of Jesus. Now let's just have a look at that. Revelation chapter 1 verse 2. John, who bear witness of the Word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ. How sorry I am that in the modern versions this has been obscure. But here you've got it, who bear witness of the word of God and of the testimony. Now, look, he bear witness of the testimony of Jesus. He wasn't witnessing, uh, the testimony of Jesus wasn't his witnessing. He witnessed to the testimony or of the testimony of Jesus. Now, you've got it again in verse 9. John... Your brother and partaker with you in the tribulation and kingdom and patience which are in Jesus was in the isle that is called Paphos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Chapter 6, verse 9. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of them that had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. They held this testimony. All right? Then chapter 12, verse 17. And the dragon waxed wrath with the woman and went away to make war with the rest of her seed that keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. That hold the testimony of Jesus. Chapter 19, verse 10. And I fell down before his feet to worship him, and he saith unto me, See thou do it not. I am a fellow servant with thee, and with thy brethren that hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Then, if you will turn back to the one other reference we have, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 6. I think we'll have to read from verse 4 to 6. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything ye were enriched in him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. The testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. Now, it seems quite clear to me that the book of Revelation has something to do with this testimony of Jesus. For instance, have you ever noticed how the book of Revelation begins? Just turn again to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show unto his servants, even the things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Now get this clear. The revelation of Jesus Christ, or if you like, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, if that helps you. The unveiling of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Jesus. Now what does that mean? earth does that mean? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. <laughs> you see, it's the testimony of Jesus. And then it goes on, and he sent and signified it, this revelation of Jesus Christ, which he, God gave to Jesus, the Lord Jesus. He sent and signified it by his, unto his servant, John. And then it goes on, who bear witness of the word of God. And of the testimony of Jesus Christ. So evidently the book of Revelation is all about this testimony of Jesus. It's an unveiling of something in Christ. (coughs) God has given Christ, if you like, a job. There is an unveiling in him. A revelation of him. And this book is all about it. The testimony of Jesus. Now, bear that in mind if you find it a bit difficult way. Now, this testimony of Jesus, in turn, is represented by the lampstand. We'll just follow this through. By the golden lampstand. Let's have another look. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now... Not candlesticks, but lampstands. Now, downstairs or in the library, you've you've seen one of those things. They call menorah. Uh, seven-branched lampstand. Now, in the old days, they didn't put candles in them. In the ancient East and Jewish world, they always had little oil lamps that fitted in. They fitted in. So the lampstand held the lamps. And the oil was in the lamps, and the light was in the wick in the lamps. Got it. Now, the testimony of Jesus is something we hold. We hold. Just like the lampstand holds the lamps with the fire in it, with the light in it. All right? Just like it says, let your light so shine before men. We know who our light is. It's the Lamb who is the light. Now then, same chapter, verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. Here we've got the word again. Now uh, will you turn to Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. Remember therefore whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first work or else I come to thee and will move thy candlestick or lampstand out of its place except thou repent. Then again, I want you to turn to the last chapter, chapter 21, and you will see that the city is virtually one great lampstand. You see here first, chapter 21, verse 10 and 11, He carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light, or luminary, was like unto a stone, most precious. She was just irradiating light. She was irradiating, just like the sun. The luminary. Absolutely pouring light out of herself. Now, will you notice, chapter 21, verse 18, the building of the wall thereof was jasper, and the city was pure gold like unto pure glass, just the same as this lampstand, golden lampstand. Now turn over the page to verse 23 and 24. The city hath no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God did lighten it. There's the light, the glory of God, and the lamp thereof is the Lamb. The sevenfold lamp is the Lamb himself. And the city is the lampstand. She holds the Lamb, as it were, and the Lamb, in the Lamb, is all the glory. So, to look at it properly, the light of the glory of God is radiating out from that great lampstand. You see? Now, when you come to verse 24, it says, And the nations shall walk amidst the light thereof. She one great luminary. She's one great lampstand giving light to all the nations. And they will walk in the light. Now we know it's all symbolic. But isn't it marvellous? The first three chapters speak of those seven golden lampstands in which this great vision of the risen triumphant Christ is to be seen. When we come to the last chapters, we find that the seven lampstands have given way for one great lampstand. The earthly, the temporal, has given the way for the eternal and the permanent. Now, that is surely somewhat significant. We do find in another place in uh, Revelation, chapter 11 and verse... um, Chapter 11 and verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the Lord of the earth. Now you will, <coughs> you will surely note that this golden lampstand is always found in connection with either the tabernacle, the temple, or the church. Now isn't that interesting? Now here in this Revelation 11, that's why I say that the lampstand is not just the church or the churches. It is the testimony of Jesus. That's the important thing about the lampstand. If you want to be technical, the actual lampstand itself is the church. But the thing about the lampstand is that the lamps are in it and that they're a light. So the essential thing about this lampstand is that it bears lamps which are a light with the glory and the light of God. Now, this is why I say from chapter 11 that it cannot just be the church. You can't just sort of say, oh, it's just the sort of technicalities of the church, just the sort of order and so on of the church. It's more than that. Why? Because in Revelation 11 you see it's the two witnesses. Now who are the two witnesses? Now that we have to leave. That would be a subject all on its own. But who are they? Are they symbolic of a, of, of, of a remnant in the last days, in fellowship with the Lord? Or are they actually two people? We won't go into that this evening. But what we do know is this. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Now, when we read in Exodus 25 of the tabernacle, in those chapters all to do with the tabernacle, we find it's the lampstand. We we read about also the lampstand. Right. When we come to Zechariah chapter 4, and it's all to do with the temple, and the rebuilding and recovery of the temple, and the completion of the temple, we see it is, again, a golden lampstand. When we come to the book of Revelation, which is all to do with final things, the completion of the the purpose of God, the completion or fulfillment of the mind of God, we find again these golden lampstands reappear. Even in this Revelation 11, we find these lampstands are in direct relationship to the temple. Now, I leave that, but there's something for you to think about. Now, let's take it a step further. It is patently clear, in spite of what I've just said, that the lampstand has something to do with the churches. It has something to do with the churches, quite clear. Revelation chapter 1, verse 11. What thou seest, write in a book, and send it to seven churches, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamum, unto Thyatira and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea, and I turned to see the voice that spake to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Verse 20, last part, the seven lampstands are seven churches. Right. It seems reasonably clear that uh, the churches, the lampstand, has something to do with the churches. Now, let's have just a look at some other scriptures. Chapter 2, verse 7. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Verse 11. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Verse 17. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Carry on. Uh, in uh, the next... same over the page, at least in my Bible. Hmm. Verse 29, "'He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches.'" You go on, you'll find it everywhere. Now, isn't it interesting that it does not say, "'He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Lord, what the Spirit saith to this church.'" Now, isn't that interesting? But instead it says, "'He that hath an ear,' that is, a spiritual organ, something that corresponds to physical hearing. Not everyone's got spiritual hearing, but those who can hear the voice of God, those who are attuned to the the voice of the Spirit, he that's got that spiritual organ of hearing, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. There is a very real sense in which this whole book of Revelation can be said, let him that hath an ear hear what the Spirit said to the churches. Again, if you want to look at it, look at chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, Verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, And so on. Verse uh, 18, the angel of the church in Tara. We have here something really quite interesting. First, we, we have quite clearly reiterated that this message is a message to the churches. And to make it abundantly clear that it's not just and only these particular letters <coughs> or words though they are, in their first instance, suited to particular circumstances, we are told quite clearly that this has something for the churches, for all of them and for all the churches, down through time. It has something to do with the churches. That's why at the end of the book, it says, I, Jesus sent my angels, testify to you of these things over the churches, concerning the churches. This whole back is over the churches. All these visions which seem to be so tremendous are really over these churches, these companies of redeemed people. Now, the other thing I want you to note in passing is what is the church. That is another big subject, and we will leave it this evening, except to point out to you one very, very interesting thing. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 11, well, it says this, something that many people could not say. What thou seest write in a book and send it to the seven churches. Unto Ephesus, unto Smana, unto Thy- Pergamum, unto Thyatira. Well, that's very interesting. The Lord calls churches by the names of the place where they are. That is very interesting, isn't it? He adds no other name, no other label. Not to the church of the overcomers. Not to the the elite remnant at Ephesus. Those who are going to hear the message and come back to their first love. Not to this group or that group. Not to the Methodist, Baptist or Church of Asia. Or we could say Holy Asian Church. Or something like that. No, it's just, write this to seven churches, two. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pharetah, Pergamon. Just in the same way that the Lord said in another place which has never been satisfactorily explained to me. Although many people have had a go. (laughs) In Titus, where, where Paul says, I left you in Crete to ordain or appoint elders in every city. Now, if the Holy Spirit knew his business according to some, he ought to have said, ordained elders in every church. And those of us who believe not only in the inspiration and authority of the Word of God, but the sufficiency of the Word of God, should take note that either we have here some ghastly little mistake, or we have something which is an eye-opener same thing here. If the Holy Spirit had done as some people think he ought should have done, he should have said, send it to the seven churches, to the church in Ephesus, to the church at Smyrna, to the church at Darada. But no, he just calls it by the locality. That's all they are. Well, now that's just, again, in passing. But this golden lampstand has a lot to do with churches. And, as I said last week, it is very, very interesting that the Holy Spirit selects seven churches which were neighbour churches. Now, why doesn't he say, send it to the church in Asia? Which would have been the very logical, common sense thing to do, but he doesn't. He says there are seven churches there, and the Holy Spirit deliberately takes neighbouring churches instead of taking Jerusalem, Antioch, Thessalonica, Rome, few places that are all widely scattered all over the place, which would have been the sensible thing to do. But no, he takes seven neighbour churches. Now, this is again important because it goes to, technically, the constitution of a church. The nature and constitution of a true church. In other words, the church is nothing less and nothing more than THE church of God expressed locally. It's not a thing. It's not a segment. It's not a sect. It doesn't gather around a particular teaching. It's not even a group of overcomers. The overcomers are amongst them. That's the point. It's not some elite group that think that because they're associated with each other, they're going to be able to hide in one another and therefore get into some privileged position in the kingdom. Far from it. It may well work the other way that our our weaknesses and our much else that we've hid behind a facade may be undone when the church is expressed locally and we begin to be seen for what we really are. These churches are nothing less than sort of pressure cookers or, uh, as I've often said, you're all bottled up inside. With a safety valve, that's the only thing that let off steam every now and again. The job's being done inside. You could put it in many other ways. Oh, how we'd like to get out of these. And how some of these folk here in these seven churches would like to have got out. To have escaped. Wouldn't it be easier to run away and have a nice little prayer meeting of those who speak the same language. Or those who agree with the Apostle John wholeheartedly. But no, 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 no. They've got to stay there because that company, until the lampstand is removed, is on the right ground, and whilst it's there, upon that foundation, which is Jesus Christ alone, you cannot go. You've got to stay and overcome. If you do go, you are no longer an overcomer. You have undone everything. Well, there's such a lot we could say. Well, now we come to overcoming. We had to say all that. Otherwise, you'd never never, uh, really understand what overcoming is. Overcoming, and finally being part of the bride of the city, has something to do with being in the church local. Now, this is quite clear. Although people don't like it because it touches our sore spots, we must all ask always for help from the Lord to always be objective and detached when it comes to truth. Otherwise, when we get subjective, oh, the things that are said and done in the name of God and in the name of Scripture. Well, now, here we've got it. Overcoming. Now, let's have a look. Revelation 2, verse 7. To him that overcometh, to him will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Uh, Then, verse 11. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Verse 11. 17, to him that overcometh, to him will I give of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and upon the stone a new name written, which no one knoweth but he that receiveth it. Verse 26, and he that overcometh, and he that keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to shivers, as I also have received of my father, and I will give him the morning star. Chapter 3, verse 5. He that overcometh shall be thus arrayed in white garments, and I will in no wise blot his name out of the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Verse 12. He that overcometh, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go out thence no more, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God and mine own new name. And then, verse uh, 21. He that overcometh, I will give to him to sit down with me in my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Now, if you turn to Revelation 21, and verse 7, we read these words. He that overcometh shall inherit these things. He that overcometh. Now, isn't it interesting? Will you please note, first of all, that he does not say, those that overcome. To all of you who overcome in this church, how do you so. say? No. The Lord deliberately personalizes it. He says, He that overcometh. You see, overcoming is something personal with a very real relationship to the corporate. Now get that absolutely clear. Overcoming is essentially personal with a relationship to the corporate. In other words, you cannot hide in other people. You can spend the whole of your life hiding in the other sense, hiding in the meeting, hiding in the teaching. You can talk the language till everyone thinks you're a C.H. Spurgeon or a J.N. Darby, as they might feel when they listen to you. You can talk the language. You can appear to have it all. You can just flow with the company that's not overcoming. That's why every one of these messages, he, that, overcometh. Nor is, overcoming, nor is overcoming, however, just a personal thing. In other words, some would say, oh, well, doesn't really matter. Oh, it does matter. It matters very, very much. Our relationship to our brothers and sisters, our relationship to all our brothers and sisters, not just those we like, not that just those we agree with, nor even mm. those w- that are right, but to all our brothers and sisters, our relationship, is, a, is vital in the matter of overcoming. Let me go further than even that. I want to say this, that really overcoming has very much to do With our attitude also, not only to the will of God, and the mind of God, and the truth of God, but to what is wrong amongst us. I think that most of us could overcome if it was a question of just a glorious vision of our Lord. If we could just be shut up with him. This is how we all think, oh, if I could only be just shut up with him, alone. Like some little sort of 20th century (laughs) hermit, Shut away with him. And see him from from early morn till late night. Then I'd be all right, I'd be an overcomer. Oh, would you? You'd live in a fool's paradise. You'd live in a fool's paradise. Why? That's why the devil's going to be let loose after a thousand years. To prove once and for all. That it's got to be something deep down within us, that if the devil is right next to us, if he lives with us, if he sleeps with us. I'm not making reference to any marriages. (laughs) But even if he sleeps with us, whatever it is, we overcome. Because we've got the overcomer in us away with any idea that you can just run away from difficulties or run away from difficult circumstances, difficult people, or difficult saints, and there are plenty of them. You can just run away, shut your back on it and run off. And then once you're away, you'll be an overcomer. Let me get as far away as I possibly can from them. And I shall triumph. You will possibly, until you come face to face with the same old problem in another set of saints, somewhere else, And then it'll get you right down again. You aren't overcoming. You're escaping. It's quite simple. You're running away. That's not overcoming. That's why the Lord never says in one single instance, get out. Here, into these seven churches. In everything he says, he that overcomes in this situation. And there's Jezebels there, the teaching of Balaam and Balak, Nicolaitanism, all kinds of dreadful things. Now, the Lord, it's your attitude to these things, not that you become sweet and gullible and stupid and become partakers of other men's sins, but that in a right attitude to what is wrong as well as to what is right, you may prove before God what's really in you. That's why the Apostle Paul, writing that tremendous letter to the church at Corinth, says, and there must be factions amongst you that the approval of God might be made manifest. The overcomer. You've got to have all these quibblings and collisions and all the rest of it because it's down here. And the ones who really overcome will be proved to be overcomers by their attitude. Well, now, that finds me out. I do hope it finds you out. (laughs) It's... It's a personal thing, essentially, and yet vitally related to the corporate. In other words, the Lord says here, this is what he said, you want to be part of the bride. You want to be in the city. You want the gold and the precious stone and the pearl out of which that city is produced. Produced in you. Well then, You've got to understand that it is in this sphere, down on earth, amongst the saints, in the church, locally expressed, (coughs) with all its failings and all its faults and all its problems and all its troubles. It's there that you are going to overcome. And it's there that you're going to come right through. And it's there that the material for this city is going to be produced. Now, isn't that interesting that in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 18, this is just what the Lord says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold refined in the fire, he says, to this Laodicean church that thought it was so rich and so knowledgeable and had everything. He says, you haven't got anything. I counsel thee, get down to this. I'm the one who's got the gold. Buy of me gold refined in the fire and all will be well. You'll have the material needed for the city of God. Well, now, I think we have to understand, therefore, that overcoming has an absolutely vital and essential relation to the golden lampstand or, if you like, to the testimony of Jesus. Let me put it this way, if I may. The Lord is not interested in playing at churches. He's not interested in, sort of, so many technicalities. As if, somehow or other, the Lord's a great technician who sits down working out details mathematically all the time, so that we all sort of obey rules like lots of little tiny ants, only not quite as spontaneous? (laughs) The Lord's not like that. The Lord's not interested. The whole point of the church is this. It is a place of discipline. It is a place of proving. It is a place of testing. It is a place of triumph. It is a place where the building work is done, and if it is not done, There, it never will be done anywhere else. Now, of course, immediately, people will ask the question, well, what do we do if there is no local church? If there is no church, true church, expressed locally. Now, this is very much like unsaved people, who as soon as the gospel is preached say, what about all those who've never heard? Now, of course, we all know exactly what to do. uh, When people ask that question, we know it's a get-out. We know it's a get-out. It's a psychological get-out. Just like they always used to yell out at the top of their voice, Where did Cain get his wife from? And they thought they could stop the open-air meeting that way. I once heard Leith Samuel yell back, Where you got yours from, you silly man, (laughs) mother-in-law? And that shut him up swiftly enough. But we all know these psychological get-outs. We all know these psychological get-outs, and we as Christians are not above making them. So what happens is this. As soon as anything like this comes, we all start saying, well, what about all those I mean, that's not the point. The point is you and me. You and me. Where are you and I? Are we, in something at least, as far as we know, in the light given to us at present, with all its awful failures And weakness and sin is the church locally expressed in some small, poor way. The church is not something relative. That is, you start off mumbling and grumbling down here, and then gradually you go up and up and up. And by stages it becomes more and more the church. The church is either the church or it isn't the church. It's as simple as that. (coughs) Of course, this other thing is a relative thing. God is doing it. But first we've got to be there where God is doing it, you see? Now then, you say, well, what happens to Well, exactly, will not the judge of all the earth do, right? Why, when you look into the Old Testament and you find that the people of God have been split into two, when you see that there are two temples, two priesthoods, and all the rest of it, did God wash his hands of the northern kingdoms of Israel and say, no more? No, some of the greatest prophets of all came from the Northern Kingdom. Elijah, Elisha, all these men, all in the Northern Kingdom. God didn't forget them. He adjusted himself to the situation, but never forgot his original purpose and plan. And so it is with you and I. Why, there are many people who will be overcomers, who had, I'm afraid, nothing to do with churches as such but who, peerlessly and beyond any shadow of a doubt, became overcomers by the grace of God. The God is not some hard technician. He is someone who longs that the overcomer himself in us shall do the work. But, uh, just wait. You and I who live here and worship here, this company, that's a little bit different, isn't it? Perhaps we could love to think of ourselves away in some little cottage in the country on the moors or somewhere else, miles and miles away from all the saints, where we could read our Bible and daily light morning and evening and spend an hour or two in prayer. Those people sometimes are the people have to overcome through loneliness. Well, the Lord knows. They have a different set of problems. But you and I haven't got quite that problem, have we? Our problem is you and me. That's our problem, isn't it? And that's why the Lord, in his tremendous wisdom, has put us together. Because it's just there that we have the acid test of everything that's truly spiritual. You have someone who's just had a tremendous experience and they say, my heart is overflowing with love. Put them in the church for six months. Someone else is filled with the spirit. Thank God for that. Put them in the church for six months. We all soon see, there are some of these folks who sort of say, well, I die there. There's something wrong with your experience. There is something terribly wrong with your experience. You should blossom there, not die there. For the Lord has promised that you shall be an overcomer there. And if you have a real experience of the Lord, whatever it is, whatever aspect of the fullness of Christ it is, there in the church it will be put to the test and made permanent. Whereas, if it is an emotional thing, a kind of spiritual drug, a shot in the arm, you'll just have to run off every now and again and get another shot. Well, you can't go through. That's not what God... What are you going to do one day when, when Antichrist comes and you're languishing in some prison cell or some labour camp, without a soul of animal, not even the want of God, with everything against you? Where are you going to go and get this blessing? If it's not in you, if it's not in me? You see, it all has something to do, overcoming has something to do with this golden lampstand. Pure gold, what is that? Pure gold, the life and nature and character of Christ. Where? In our meetings? Aha, just wait. No, in my personal life, where only God sees me, and in my home. Why, if a man beats up his wife, there's no pure gold in him, is there? If someone is all the time holding back money that should be for the house, there's something wrong, isn't there? Why, if our homes are not places where the pure gold of Christ's life and nature are not being bought and experienced, produced, something wrong? And same with business. You know, you're, we are not the church just when we meet together, we are the church of God, we are the body of Christ. We don't become the body of Christ when we come through the door. We are the body of Christ, at home, alone, at work. We are the body. And the, this whole work of producing the pure gold must go on in all, at business. Why, do you know most of us spend the larger amount of our days in our place of work or business? So that's not a kind of uh, shut-out, irrelevant part of your life. It's a very, very important part of your life. You may have a humdrum job, but you can be sure the Lord's watching it, watching your attitude to it and just watching what's happening. It's gold. And so we can go on, but our time's gone. We could go on talking about pure gold. Pure gold. Beaten work. What does it speak of? Discipline. Chastening. S- the school of Christ. We get plenty of that. If we're in the church, the Lord chasteneth everyone, scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Those whom he loves, he trains his children. It's beaten work. <laughs> beaten. Comes out of travail. And uh, we would all like to escape that, wouldn't we? overcoming has something very much to do with that. Will we escape from the discipline? Will we run away from the discipline? It's rather like Daniel when he went into the lion's den. Two possibilities. Lord, save me from the lions. Or save me, Lord, when I'm amongst the lions. What shall we do? Well, if the Lord saves you, as he often does from the lions, you will find the devil one day by your side, whispering in your ear. You just wait. The lions are waiting for you. There's always the possibility that sometime or other you're going to have to face the lions. But once you've faced them and found that God can shut their mouths, what more can the devil do? He can do no more. He's done his worst. You've gone into the lion's den, ready for death, if necessary. You've faced the lions and they haven't been able to open their mouth, they've just purred. <laughs> well, think of that. And there's oh so much else we could say about this lampstand, perhaps we'll talk about it again another time, but there's such a lot to do with every aspect of it. Our overcoming is related to it, because it's not just discipline in the church, it's not just the School of Christ when we meet together, but our home are the school of Christ. It's part of it. Our work is the school of Christ. It's part of it. The Lord's <coughs> training us. The Lord's watching us all the time. <coughs> well, may the, may the Lord just help us. I say there is something terribly wrong. Uh, when somehow our lives are just not bearing out what we there. The surest sign of that is this pure olive oil, isn't it, the spirit? When you think of it, if a man comes to me and says, I'm filled with the spirit and swindles at work, he's a liar. He's a liar. Don't come to me and say, oh, it's just gone. He's a liar. To say that he's a Christian and failed, that's another thing, but to say he's filled with the Spirit and swindles at work, the man's a liar. No place for them in the city. person comes and says, I'm filled with the Spirit, and gets drunk. What does it say? With such a one had not anything to do. The man's not filled with the Spirit, he's a liar. You see, it's, God judges us by what we say with our lips. It's different when we don't say anything. <laughs> but when we say something, it comes to the test. It comes to the test. The moment we've said it, it comes to the test. And the Holy Spirit says, I'm the spirit of truth, I will test it. I will test it. This lampstand is pure in every part, and that is overcoming. It's Christ in us. May the Lord just help us, then, to understand a little bit more. Maybe we shall have the opportunity to look a little more deeply into it. Don't let it be uncomfortable, but let it be true. For, you see, whatever our claims may be, or whatever we may say, it is he that overcometh that inherits these things. And there's no reason at all for the weakest believer not to overcome. Just let the overcomer do the work. Once he gets inside, he'll do it. And we shall be through. As the Lord says, He that overcometh will sit down with me in my throne as I also overcame. And have sat down in my Father's throne. May the Lord help each one or shall we pray now Lord we do pray together that thou wilt really help us we need thy help Lord this book is not an easy book and the subjects we've been talking about this evening are not easy but Lord thou canst give understanding thou canst give illumination Lord by thy spirit thou canst apply these things to our lives Lord, may we be encouraged, may we be corrected. Where it is necessary, may we be rebuked. But Lord, our prayer is that every one of us may become an overcomer by thy grace alone. Through the powerful working of thy Holy Spirit in our lives, may we know what it is to gain the victory. And we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.